Welcome to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. I'm Diana Britton, Managing Editor of wealthmanagement.com, and in this podcast, we explore some of the struggles and personal development issues facing advisors and financial services professionals, and how to get to a place of healing for mind, body, and spirit. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Healthy Advisor podcast and thanks for joining us. As you may know, this is the podcast focused on financial advisor health and wellness and today's guest is no stranger to health issues. Her name is Lynn Ballou. Uh, She's a CFP emeritus and retired senior vice president and partner at EP Wealth, a fee-only RA headquartered in Torrance, California. Uh, but Lynn's based in Lafayette, California, in the Bay Area. Uh, Lynn, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So after selling her firm to EP Wealth in in 2016, Lynn became a fixture among EP's leadership team uh, that worked to take the RA to new heights during the course of its expansion by M&A. In her role, she also served as a mentor for younger advisors and staff and advocated for greater diversity in hiring both at EP Wealth and and throughout the wealth management industry. Um, You know, she's been an advocate for for many, many years for greater diversity in the industry. But Lynn, you know, sort of had to put all that on hold when she was diagnosed with stage four melanoma, the most serious type of skin cancer, and eventually retired in June of last year. And while Lynn is not can't say she's cancer free. Um, she's feeling great these days, I think. And, um, you know, taking part in a clinical trial that's helped her, you know, live with the cancer. Uh, in March, she joined forces with EP Wealth to launch the their, the first annual Blue EP Wealth Diversity in Financial Services Scholarship. Uh, the program will provide a one-time scholarship for students pursuing a CFP connecting them to valuable resources and and mentorship opportunities as they advance their studies. Um, But Lynn, I want, you know, to talk a little bit about the journey you've been on the last couple of years. Um, So take us back to before the diagnosis and what, what happened leading up to that? Okay. I really am a person who believes in everyone taking care of themselves and I always bend over backwards to make sure my family and being a good Jewish mom, I am, I'm always giving free advice and all sorts of things. So it's (laughs) fairly ironic that I failed to do that for myself (laughs) because um, before I was diagnosed, I wasn't feeling fantastic. I was feeling pretty awful in fact, but I self-diagnosed myself. Oh, I think I have kidney stones or, Oh, you know, this, that, or the other. And finally, it was such a bad situation. I went to see my doctor. What a concept, right? And Mm -hmm. he said, no, I think you have some gallbladder problems and you should go in and get that looked at and get it scanned. Um, Unfortunately, by the time I went in to get that scanned, I was so sick. I had actually checked myself into the emergency room where, in fact, I did need my gallbladder removed. But in that journey, they scan every part of your body to make sure they've got the right thing. And all sorts of spots were showing up that. I suppose aren't supposed to be there. And the hospitalist came into me and said, you know, definitely we'll take the gallbladder out. But did you realize you also have cancer throughout your body? And I looked at him and I laughed and I said, Oh, no, 
I don't. <laughs> you know, mm. that must be cysts or something like that. I don't have cancer. So we went ahead with the gallbladder surgery and he said, well, we'll talk about this when it's, when you're recovered from that. And, um, things just progressed so fast. I wasn't recovering from the surgery and I was quite sure it was because they had left a sponge in or something, not because I actually had cancer. Um, and by the time I went in to see the specialists, it was so severe that I was literally at death's door. My daughter went, brought me to the urgent care doctor and she gave my daughter a big oxygen tank put me at the oxygen tank and my daughter in the car and sent us over to UCSF in San Francisco to their world famous melanoma program. And I stayed there for in the ICU for hmm, almost 14 days. I think it was a little over a week and a half and where they saved my life. But when I got there, we didn't think that my life was savable. They told me I really wasn't going to make it. So mm -hmm. I think that the problem is, is that, you know, it's typical example of giving great advice to other people, and not taking your own great advice, uh, because I didn't have time to be sick. You know, there was no way I needed surgery. There was nothing wrong with me. I had things to do and easy for me to point out to others how that's not a good idea for them, but really hard for me to do that for myself. Yeah. Tell, so tell me about that night in the hospital when they, they came in and, and they, uh, you know, the doctor said, we don't think you're going to make it. Yeah, through the that night. was shocking, right? I mean, by then I was so sick. Part of you at that point just doesn't care because you're just mm. so sick. You can't really cope with it. But honestly, for me, instead of, oh my God, I'm going to die. It was an incredible sense of calm overcame me and peace. I was not sitting there thinking about all the things I hadn't done. I took a moment to reflect on all the amazing things that I have been able to do in my life and the opportunities far beyond anything I had ever thought was possible and all the people in my life that mattered to me and all the things that we had accomplished. And so I had an incredible sense of calm, but of course it was during the pandemic and no one could come in and be there for me. Uh, they allowed one person at a time to come in from time to time. And my daughter was that person. Um, so I called her and told her and it was tough, tough to, to discuss. Um, mm. But, you know, shockingly <laughs> and happily, they really do at UCSF, and I'm not going to ever be able to say enough great things about them. And, you know, they've been world leaders on the melanoma research front. So my timing on having this was exquisite and being in the Bay Area and right near them was really lovely because they were able to take care of me. So they quickly did diagnose exactly what particular type of melanoma I had. It had metastasized throughout my body. And the reason they didn't think I was going to make it through the night was because some of my organs were so infected, they didn't think they would recover, but they knew enough to have a good solid guess as to what was going on. And they actually put, did an aspiration and figured it out and did a biopsy and all that good stuff. So they put me very quickly on chemo meds. They're called tar target chemotherapy, which is I don't know if that's true for all melanoma patients, but I hear more and more that instead of going in for more traditional chemo and radiation, this is the approach is to give you targeted chemo drugs that are directed to the type of melanoma that you have. Mm -hmm. So I was very, very fortunate to be on death's door and then go home 10 days later, you know, on my own steam with these amazing drugs in my system and on a, a new medication protocol. Yeah. And um, 
so the I know that you got on some initial drug treatments. Mm-hmm. And I mean, tell me about that. It was was it radiation and chemo? What, no. Uh, no, they didn't do any radiation or chemo. Instead, they were using these targeted chemo drugs. And um, there's a vast number of um, options, much more than I would have ever thought. And when I say vast, I'm not meaning thousands. It's possibly dozens of different types of medication that are being worked on and developed, even as we speak and fine tune and all that. So Um, these drugs were designed to take the place of what traditional chemo and radiation looks like, I'm sure. And they were things that, you know, you just take in pill form instead. I was fortunate that they worked so fast. I mean, my, my liver and spleen and all those things that matter that I knew so little about that were, you know, on the verge of collapse responded quickly and the tumors backed off enough that those organs could revive and do their job pretty well. And they sent me home on those drugs. So Mm. obviously it was a win-win situation at that time. Yeah. And um, so I know that, I mean, tell me about the, what was going on at work during this time. And, you know, you had to sort of call, you know, the, the leaders of EP wealth and kind of retire, right. Um, You had to let go that I was retiring per se. I thought I was going to die. So, you know, (laughs) I don't think the word retirement entered my mind, but I, you know, when you're a private wealth manager and you have years and years of um, relationships with your clients, the last thing you ever want to do is just not show up one day. Right. So Mm -hmm. my retirement vision was that I would retire in a few years and we would have the next generation of advisor sit in meetings with me, make sure the clients were comfortable and, you know, slowly do that handoff in a logical and fabulous way. And so because I couldn't even get up and go to the bathroom, let alone, and I couldn't type, I couldn't think, I couldn't balance my checkbook. I mean, my brain was just a mess. But I could still talk, which was a good thing. And parts of my, and my memory was still fine. So I did call management at EP and said, look, I don't see myself. I think I'm going to die. I probably will. And we need to get my clients taken care of as quickly as possible by another advisor. So Mm -hmm. they were fantastic. They dropped everything and helped create a list of advisors and client match that we worked on together to make sure that the, every client had the best possible advisor. And I spent time working with each advisor, giving them the backstory that's not always in writing about that client, their visions for their family, who they were as people, things like that. Obviously all the facts and circumstances of their cases were written down and accessible in really good order, but there's always more to the story than that. Who is this person? What are they all about? What matters to them? And so I think from the client perspective, it went about as well as could be hoped for. And I really attribute that to how well-organized EP was and is and continues to be. And I also feel very, very blessed that Marilyn and I had sold our company and merged in with them in 2016. I can't even imagine what Mm. would have happened if we had still been in our small partnership office and this had happened to me. I, I don't really know what would have happened. I don't even want to think about it, but they were great. And so I definitely was on medical leave. I don't think I was actually retired out at that point. They put me on medical leave and they kept my partnership and everything in place while we figured out what was going on. Um, And everybody um, there at EP took over the client care and did a fantastic job. Yeah. 
I mean, why do you think you kind of went into such denial when you were told about the cancer? Well, <clears throat> I am a bit of a control freak, people would say. I don't know what they're talking about, but you know, um, you're a planner, right? And you plan and you yeah. help people plan and you plan yourself and everything's planned. <laughs> and uh, even though you build into the plan, things can go wrong. You have life insurance, you have disability insurance, you have all these things in place in case things go amok, but it's not going to happen to you, right? It's mm -hmm. going to happen to somebody else. So I think I was simply shocked um, more than anything and taken aback that this was happening. And as I say, I never, I was never angry. I was never like, why me? Uh, I was just grateful, so grateful that I had had an amazing life, that I had an amazing family, that I had an amazing team of people and all of that. But at the same time, I was shocked. I was, you know, that's how I celebrated my 67th birthday was, you know, <laughs> figuring out I was dying of cancer. So I, mm. I just think it's part of the nature of the beast when you're a control person and you're a planner you are quite sure that you're doing everything right for your own life too. And that everything is exactly how it's going to happen. And of course, you know, no. Yeah. And I think that a lot of advisors um, do that where they are so focused on their practice and their clients and taking care of their clients uh, that, you know, they're not as focused on themselves. And uh, I mean, it sounds like you had, um, from a from a financial and you know perhaps succession planning uh, perspective, you had things in order, but um, you know in terms of taking care of your your body, you know a lot of uh, I think a lot of advisors put that on the back burner. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, I do I do it. Um, you know, <laughs> as a journalist, I mean, we're just yeah. so deadline driven, and um, you know, we don't you know doctors' appointments that we don't have time for that. You know, so but I think it um, you know there is sort of this larger issue um, going on here. And I you're think not, the other you're not wrong. I, I agree with yeah. you completely because you you're focused on helping somebody else. You're focused on the deadlines and all of that. And if it's convenient to go to the doctor, sure. And if you set it up six months in advance and it's time to get your teeth cleaned, it's probably you'll make that. But these other things that come up that are just nuisances is what they start out as. It sounds like a nuisance and that become deadly quickly are not things that are sort of in the scope of what we think are might be happening. And so we don't drop everything and do what we should do. Yeah. And I think the other thing going on here is it's obviously your physical health. But also mentally, you know, what were you going through? Because you had this sort of idea of what your retirement would look like and when you would do it and mm -hmm. how you would wind down your business. Um, I mean, so how did how did this affect uh, that? Yeah, it's still affecting it because I still don't know what I'm going to do. I'm shocked that I'm feeling this well. I'm on a new clinical trial of chemotherapy drugs, which is just incredible. It's not getting rid of the cancer, but even though I still have stage four metastatic melanoma, I'm still, I'm now a functioning person as well as I was before I was diagnosed, which is simply miraculous, but I don't have a clear idea of what's next. When I thought about retirement, you know, first of all, there's two people involved in this story. One is my husband, because my husband was diagnosed with dementia about six or seven years ago. And he actually lives in a full-time memory care facility. So I suppose we already had adjusted our thinking about what our retirement was gonna be like. It wasn't gonna be him and me going and renting an RV and traveling and seeing the US and 
going overseas and all that, it was going to be a much different retirement already. And because I'm very much a homebody and focused on kids and grandkids, the idea of not doing any of that and instead staying home and gardening and doing day trips and hanging out with the family and the grandkids was already in the works of what my vision was, but I, I wasn't ready you know, it's 67, 68 to do that. And I'm 69 now and I'm still not ready. (laughs) You know, So I, you know, this is the interesting thing about being a human. You never do know what your path is going to be. So, and it feeds right into financial planning. So what you do is you set up a baseline so that no matter what happens, you'll be okay. And then you'll figure things out as you need to, as they come up. I am still figuring things out as I need to, as they come up. When it was nine months after my diagnosis and after I had left my full-time working day, EP kept me on and that was really great of them. But it was June of last year and I still wasn't well enough to go back to work. I still couldn't balance my checkbook. I still couldn't write a letter. I could barely stand to, we got so much mail from so many people about things that needed to be done and forms that needed to be filled out. Luckily, my daughter actually quit her job and became my full-time caretaker and secretary and handled all those things. And the fact that I still couldn't do any of that was indicative of the fact that I couldn't go back to work. So it was at that Mm -hmm. point that we agreed that I would have a retirement date of last June. In retrospect, I should have listened to my oncologist because she said, no, you're not going to die. No, we're going to find a clinical trial. <laughs> no, just stay alive and keep fighting. And we're, we're going to get to that next step. And mm. she, she had a vision all along that I would be not cured, but feeling well enough to live a decent life. And she, boy, she was sharp. She is incredibly sharp and she's right. And it is amazing all the research and work that's being done for those of us who have melanoma that benefits us greatly. So shocking to be retired. And then in Halloween (laughs) is when I started on the clinical trial. So basically three to four months after I was quote unquote retired, I suddenly started feeling amazingly well. And I'm like, oh no, now what am I going to do? I'm feeling pretty darn great. Retirement, Ikes. now what? And so I still am struggling with that a bit, but you know. Yeah. Um, How are you spending your days Well, that's a really good question. Um, (laughs) Every day at the end of the day, I go, what did you actually achieve today? So one of the great things about this has been, I've sort of forced to do the things that I used to sit in my office and wish I could do. There's nothing more horrible. It's such a tease to live in beautiful Northern California on a spring day and be stuck in your office. Well, I'm not, (laughs) you know, it's a beautiful spring day. And when we're done, I'm going to be going on a bike ride. And then tomorrow I'm going to go out to Point Reyes and go for a hike. And, you know, so that's what I'm doing right now is I'm just enjoying being alive and all the pent up hikes and bike rides and little day trips and things like that, that I couldn't do spontaneously before I would have loved to. I'm fitting them all in now. And the question is, when will I wake up one day and go, okay, I'm bored. Now what? (laughs) It hasn't happened quite yet, but I feel that day might be coming. So we will see. Uh, The CFP board has told me that I can reinstate my CFP by June 30th for a a few hundred dollars. It's great news. A few hundred dollars in just a few classes. And so I'm toying with doing that um, simply to keep my options open because there might still be another trick that this pony has. I'm just not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's also, 
you know, we don't have to feel like we're accomplishing something every day. Right. I mean, don't I, we though? I mean, that's, and that boy, there's the million dollar question because I don't know. I, sure I mean, did. I, I definitely so. do. I mean, even on the weekends, you know, I'm like, right. I needed to get like, what can I do? I'm just sitting around. I need to do, get some stuff done, but we, you know, we need to, you know, You're sort crazy. of slow down and, yes. and enjoy life. And it sounds like that's uh, what you're doing. Yes. But um, you know, you bring up a good point. I actually make to-do lists every single day and I put things like dishes, laundry, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's no longer call this client and solve world peace and all that. It's very basic things, but it makes me feel like I at least accomplished something that yeah. day. But, you know, I wonder if it's an industry problem, Diana, or if it's a much broader sort of American problem, because whether it's law or medicine or journalism or financial planning or whatever, aren't we all just a little bit not taking care of ourselves and not making it a priority? And I, you know, I've been doing a lot more reading now than I was ever able to before. And it strikes me that it's pretty impossible to look at a family that's being headed by two hardworking people or one hardworking person who might be working in retail or in the restaurant business or something like that. And they have a couple of kids and where are the resources if something like this happened to them? How, mm -hmm. how would they fare? I mean, those are the folks that might end up homeless or, you know, might end up in severe debt or gosh knows what could happen to them. So I feel as if we don't make our health for anybody or, you know, a, a priority in this country. And I think it's something that we have to start talking about and maybe creating healthy pathways for everyone. I had a client many years ago who was an attorney and she was walking me through the choices she had to make every single day about whether she was going to make partner or whether she was going to go home before midnight and see her children. And it's it was astonishing to me that she had to make that choice, but we hear about it in every field, whether it's law or this or that or the other. It, it's, I wonder how we get from where we are to everyone's health being a priority to them, right? And it's one of the reasons I'm excited about this scholarship from EP because it's a diversity-based scholarship. Until we really bring a diverse group, an increasingly diverse group into the fold, so to speak, of the profession of financial planning and wealth management, I suspect that our own profession won't resolve these issues really the way they should. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the diversity is important because every person brings a different set of perspectives to the field that they're in. And maybe we can do a better job of solving some of these problems when we have more perspective. Yeah. And I mean, I know that Lynn, you're, you're very humble about it, but you've had a, you know, an incredible career in this industry, uh, more than 40 years in the industry. Right. Right. And, and you just, you've been a trailblazer for women in this industry. And, um, you know, I know back in 2011, our publication profiled you, um, you know, as part, as one of our top, uh, women rankings and, um, you know, so you've been, You've been at this and, and um, you know, just really kudos to you. Uh, we, you know, have a lot of respect for what you've done over the years. And just, you know, I guess, given all the wisdom you have, do you have any advice for young professionals in the wealth management industry? And also just any advice for how we can improve the diversity in the industry, in, in the industry, because I know we 
talk about it a lot. It's, um, you know, always a topic at, at conferences, but I, I just still don't feel like the the needle is moving. Um, you know, so what do you think is the answer there, I guess? Oh, but that's a really good and complex set of questions. Um, <laughs> right at the meat of that's the matter. That's a whole though. other podcast. I right? know, but I love it. This is, this is the conversation, Diana. So good for you for putting your finger right on the heartbeat there. I think, first of all, that it doesn't happen overnight. And I think that's one of the problems that we have as a species. Again, we're impatient, right? I came up with this idea. I talked to five people. Let's go. Let's go. Why hasn't this been accomplished yet? You know, mm-hmm. um, I think about my mother and my grandmother, how they fought for women's rights and they how they must be rolling over in their grave about some of the things that still happen that they fought so hard to not have happened. That said, things are changing and they are better, but they do take time. And one of the most important variables in change is education, because until we have an educated populace, then there can't really be deep change. And when I say that, I talk about something as simple as high school. If every high schooler in this country had to take a semester of personal financial planning before they were allowed to graduate, just think about the difference that would make because they would know how to open a checkbook, how to set up a budget, how to use credit wisely and, and to avoid the credit they shouldn't. Just all the myriad of things that sometimes they get taught at home. And sometimes I remember myself, I would try to teach my kids, were they listening? Sometimes, but sometimes it's hard to learn this stuff from your parents, right? And yeah. so better that it's more done in a more formal way. And there is coursework available and it would be helpful. And the other reason I say how important that is, is not only would it be great to have an educated, a financially literate and educated populace, but also I think the exposure to the field of financial planning in high school might pique the interest of a lot of youngsters who would then perhaps go into either community colleges or um, higher four-year colleges or whatever and pursue it as a career or even take a part-time job or an internship or something like that in a financial services job. Whereas before, maybe they didn't even know that it was a profession. It's sort of like the secret that they find out later in life. I think that would be tremendously helpful. So it's going to take time and it's going to take people not giving up and it's going to take something that has to be measured over generations and not over years, not even decades, I don't think. I think it's going to take just a whole long time. In terms of people who might be interested in this field, one of the most important things to do is to be curious. And there's many, many of us who are more than happy to have a conversation with someone who might be interested in this profession. And it doesn't have to be anything as formal as a mentorship. I fielded lots of calls and emails from people who said, hey, can I just borrow an hour of your time? I want to ask you some questions or what could you tell me about this, that or the other? So I think it's always so fun to read articles about people who got out the old fashioned yellow pages, now Google or whatever, and did a search for, okay, who's in charge of JP Morgan's private wealth management in, you know, for example, or who's running the financial planning division at EP Wealth, get their name, shoot them an email and just say, may I have borrow, or could I just have a half an hour to an hour of your time? I'm excited about your profession and I want to learn more. I don't think too many people would turn that down. Um, And if they couldn't do it themselves, I'm sure that they would refer to somebody in their firm that they thought 
could do a good job for them. So I think being curious and being brave and putting yourself out there is super important. And then the other thing about our profession, Diana, that I know you know, is that there's many ways to be in the field of financial planning, right? There's mm -hmm. everything from being client facing to being back office. There's the investment side. There's the estate planning side. There's the tax side. I mean, it's just such a fun profession because you can never possibly be bored. There's always something new to learn and to do and to be aware of. And so again, arming oneself with knowledge and information about the many facets of financial planning, I think would be really helpful. And, and uh, anybody who's interested should do that. And if somebody is starting off in the field, I would say continue to be interested in all the facets of the field, because you might get excited, you know, working for a firm and being on the operations desk, but then your interest might be more piqued about the investment team and what do they do? And so don't close your eyes to the opportunity to learn and grow and explore um, new facets of the profession. You know, this profession, you know, you were talking before about why aren't we taking care of ourselves? I think entrepreneurs tend to do a really bad job of taking care of themselves because the hours they put in are hideous. But, and this profession yeah. was started by entrepreneurs, right? Because it was mm -hmm. a brand new profession, but it's not that anymore. It's a very mature profession compared to what it was 40 or 50 years ago. So there's really no excuse for us not to take care of ourselves. And one of the things we need to do to take care of ourselves is to bring in that next generation. And so I'm always encouraging my peers and colleagues to make time and be available so that we can, um, because if we don't, then it's going to be a one or two generation profession. It'll just go away. And that would be a shame. Yeah. And I mean, you're sort of a, an example of where, um, you know, secession planning worked, right? Yes. And, and things were um, set up for, for your clients that way. Um and, and it was sort of a smooth transition. We were um, very lucky. I think one of the things that happened, Marilyn and I were partners in the business that we established and she wanted to retire before me. And I didn't see myself buying her out. And I also realized I had reached the absolute maximum of what I could handle as a business owner. I mm -hmm. just am not that great at running a bigger business and our business needed to grow and I couldn't do it. I was, I didn't have that talent and Marilyn wanted to retire. So we went on a journey to find the right fit and it took a number of years. This is back to the patience factor. We can't just say, Oh, something needs to change and just expect it to change because the words came out of our mouth and we talked to five people about it. It has to change from hard work. And so it was really interesting to go through that several year period. It was frustrating some days, but it was really interesting too, to see how other people were beginning to tackle this issue of succession planning. I think we're doing a better job now. Um, and there's more and more of us at the baby boomers who either have to retire because of medical reasons or who simply want to retire for a lot of other reasons. And so I think we're, we're tackling it, but without that next generation, we can't retire there will be no succession plan. So we really have to get the word out there. Yeah, I um, I agree. That, that's a great point. Um, well, I'm afraid we're just about out of time, but I'd like to thank my guest, Lynn Ballou, for being on the podcast and, and just opening up here about her journey. Lynn, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much as well. I, I think we just have so much to learn from, from you. Um, if you'd like to reach out to Lynn, you can reach her at lynnbalu at comcast.net. You can email her that way. And if you yourself have a struggle and you wish to share your experiences and 
help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at diana.britton at informa.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your particular situation.